pronounce your name correctly for me sean richards now sean you and i've known each other for what going on 20 years now almost mm-hmm. a lot of hiatuses in there where we didn't actually weren't in direct contact but true met each other 20 years ago let's say around 2000 yes yeah that's about right but i don't know a huge amount of you before that so one of the big questions that i always ask people to start off with is of course like how did you get creative so like your parents were creative, like interesting schoolings. Like, how did you even get to the creative industries? I drew a lot as a kid. So I would copy comic books. I would copy baseball cards. And I was naturally, you know, a little good at it. And so I got encouragement and everyone likes that encouragement. So I got this positive reinforcement. So I kept practicing and getting better. And and then in my high school, art class was like a cop-out class. And so the art teacher had the worst kids. And I was that one golden person who was so engaged and so into it. She let me do whatever I wanted. I still like had art history lessons and still there were certain projects and whatnot. But for the most part, I, I just she was just like, just keep doing that. Now, so, where was this? though? Virginia. I grew up in uh, southeast Virginia, the Tidewater region. Franklin, small town, about 10,000 people. Okay. And now, now you like when we met, you were still sort of finding your voice and all this kind of stuff. So over the past 20 years or so, we both have grown a lot. Mm hmm. So what are you doing now? Because I know you're in a bit of a transition time. What am I doing now? It's not that different from what I've been doing for like 10 years in that I try to not be art artist statement-y, but I'm engaged by the world around me. And a lot of the work is a negotiation of that. Okay, stop. Okay. Stop. That's not what I wanted at all. Oh, what? So I'm yeah, not sure. No, okay. So um, let's take it back a step. So what are you doing now? What I meant by this is that is... Um, Oh, you're talking about the, the transition. Yeah, like professionally. You're getting ready to move. You recently got married. Yeah. And you're getting ready to move with your wife over to Germany. Hamburg, Germany, yeah. And so so like this is a lot of change and sort of flux. That transition, like, yes. So, well, like I knew you in Wilmington, North Carolina. You mm-hmm. then moved to New York City for a decade or so. Not even? I was there for like four years. Oh, fuck. Okay. Three and a half, four years. It was not that long. But then I moved to Raleigh. Right. And, and you've so, been in Raleigh for mm-hmm. 15 years now? Since 2006 or seven. Yeah. That's about 15 years. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I've noticed like in my own career, and so like I'm sort of wondering for you how this has affected you, is I always thought that moving and having more experiences would be beneficial to my career, like changing locales and you know having life experiences. I found that actually it's been very detrimental to my career. Like a lot of times I end up not keeping the connections and relationships that I had at previous places. I'm when not great I at that either. Yeah. You what? I'm not great at that either. That That's also, but go on. You're, yeah. No, that's it. So like, I was just gonna say like, had, have you had a similar sort of experience with that? Because that's my experience that I'm bad at. It's partly my fault. So I, I'm terrible at keeping up with people as well. And maybe keep up with two or three people in New York. And then here in Wilmington, maybe 10, but really it's probably in that neighborhood of three to five that I, you know, keep in touch with in on a regular basis, meaning like every six months or so there might be a message sent or, you know, very minimal, but not really keeping in touch. And the transition part, New York was a whole transition just because of the naivety which, with which I left Wilmington and not sort of understanding the art world and or contemporary art world and being in grad school and sort of shattering all the romance Wait a minute, you went to grad school in New York? 
Well, I didn't finish, but yeah, I was in grad school. I was doing a uh, SUNY Empire State. Okay. So I did three semesters of non-matriculated grad work, and then they killed the program. The lease came up on the building, and it, the rent like went from went became like a twenty million dollar lease or something. Like it, it was right by FIT and twenty seventh, and between seventh, sixth, and seventh or seventh and eighth. Anyway, and so that the work I was making there like was not. It's grad school. They're tearing you down. And so you start hating everything you're doing. You don't know why you're doing anything. And and then I ended up staying in New York another year or two after grad school and got a job with a commercial art company and worked so much and made so little that I had no time to enjoy the city. And I realized it had been maybe like eight months or a year since I'd made anything for me. And so I, I made that sort of decision of just to get back to trying to make paintings full time. And so I left. I didn't. I went to my dad's in Virginia. I had a layover. I didn't know I was going to end up in Raleigh. I was looking at other cities that were kind of similarly sized, probably bigger size, like Denver, Austin, Atlanta for kind of a minute. Thought about Baltimore and Philadelphia, and then I had friends. They were in a band that were doing well in Raleigh. We used to live in Wilmington, the Rosebuds, and I kept going to see them because it was a shorter drive than Wilmington from my dad's house. And uh, I just met a bunch of great people. There was a good little community. Cost of living was really good. So I, I pulled the trigger after a few months of being at my dad's and moved to Raleigh. When I moved to Raleigh, I didn't know what I was doing uh, <laughs> art-wise because I just come from New York and the grad school experience. And right, well, so, which is sort of the thing that I what I heard in that conversation was like basically the the fact that you when you moved to Wilmington and went to North to New York, you sort of like all your preconceived ideas of the art world were sort of broken and reconstructed, and like you learned a lot. Mm -hmm for better or for worse in, in New York about the contemporary art world and all this kind of stuff. What were some of those things that the, the naivete is that sort of got broken? I don't know exactly what, even how to frame it now in a way. One of the things I felt strongly about, and I still kind of feel this way is that it felt like a closed circle and you, it was hard to break through that closed circle. And so people, there were a lot of very, inauthentic people networking, trying to break into that circle. It was very gross to me. And then I, I noticed this thing about grad school in New York is that people were sort of going to school to get, a, to get picked up grad school that is. So they were, their teachers were showing in those galleries in Chelsea and other places. And so there was this to pay $20,000 a semester to network was not my idea of like a way to go. It's what a lot of people go to grad school for, though, these yeah. days in America. I get the mentorship part, like working with someone whose work you respect, like having that person teaching you or guiding you, critiquing you. But then the um, I started going to see all these shows and I'd go around Chelsea and the work I liked. Most of the time they weren't living in New York and they were from, you know, wherever Texas, wherever Arizona, wherever Georgia, like and so it struck me that, you know, I could do this and not worry about rent so much and be able to do it a lot more full time and not have to deal with that pace or that struggle. And that, that was sort of the big push was I was just like, I can do this from anywhere. I don't have to be. Oh, especially these days with, you know, uh, FedEx and deep DHL and I mean, uh, you know, and, and art handlers and shippers and stuff like this. Like, it's very easy to live almost anywhere these days and be an artist and ship it wherever the sh exhibition is. The other aspect of sort of being a part of the scene and being able to get studio visits or being able to where all these heavy hitters live and can happen doesn't happen outside of New York, really. It's true. Being in those locales, New York, L.A., 
Berlin, you get those options of not options because you still have to make a name and people still have to want to come see you, but the possibility of entering into that world more easily. And there are a few people I know who are very smart who recently graduated from the MFA program at UNC who have studios in New York but live in North Carolina. And so they go up every so often, try to do the network thing, get people to come in their studio. And so they're paying for a closet space, basically, just to have that, I don't know what to call it stature, but like that option. Oh, no, it's absolutely stature. And uh, I certainly don't have the resources or wherewithal to sort of do that, but it's one other savvy way of approaching it. It's a cunning plan. And yeah, I don't know where I'm like I said, I don't know where I was going with that, except to re- reflect on being being in a smaller city. Yeah, you're just talking about the differences between like living in New York and what you learned there, and then sort of the, why you chose to leave it, basically. Yeah, yeah, which is is the reason why most of us choose to leave it. I mean, <laughs> in the end, I was just listening to something a radio thing on the way here. Like, I mean, the reason people move out of the cities is not because they don't like the cities; it's because they can't afford the cities. Mm-hmm. Like, that's it. Like if, if any, like I would love to live in Berlin or New York or London or any of these great places yeah. if I was rich yeah, because it would be great fun to live there. Yes. But not being rich, those cities are not fun to live in. <laughs> That's it. So, you know, if we could, if we could afford it, it would be amazing to stay there, but yeah. we can't. We're, you know, we're on the fringes of the, the gig economy. It economies. might be getting very affordable soon. <laughs> I hope so. Which is interesting. Yeah. We'll see. Mm-hmm. All right. One thing I love about you and I admire about you greatly and that I've often spoken to other people about how good you are at this that I like always I always admired, let's just say it's the easiest word. I have no idea what you're going to say. I know. That's the fun <laughs> of this. Is your work ethic. Oh. You really thing. treat being an artist as a job. Like ever since I met you like 20 years ago. How old are you now? Uh, 43. Okay. So you were 20 something and you have this incredibly uh, strict, but in a good way. I don't mean that in a bad way. Work ethic. You show up in the studio at 9 a.m. You do your work. You work until five, you five o'clock, you put your stuff down, you go home and that's it. I wish I could do that. <laughs> it's, I, I, to me, it's a very admirable trait sure how how did you even come up with that like and so like what how did that get instilled into you i've always been regimented to some degree about stuff like that and i I don't know if it's the universe my sign i'm a virgo i'm analytical and me too yeah wait when's uh, your birthday august 26th okay september 3rd i remember september yeah yeah i remember having birthdays around the same time yeah um (laughs) one of my ex-girlfriends used to call me regimented richards because of the and, and a lot of it was i got myself deadlines and just I had to make sure I produced and you know I was doing at some point like two or three shows a year with different galleries and all new work most of the time now it's not like that at all like my productions dropped way down my work ethic hasn't changed that much but the I don't even know why it's changed so much well the scale of your work has changed dramatically well, from last I, mean, I saw true to some degree I mean yeah it is I'm making much bigger stuff than I did when I lived here when I lived in Wilmington I've always been that I grew up playing baseball and was like played a year of college baseball. And I worked so hard. Turned out to work really hard to be very average in college. <laughs> and that's yeah. how it goes. But yeah. I don't know. It's just always been. And, and for me, it's it's like a, especially studio practice. 
I've had different gigs and odd jobs, which I can't get in the studio every week or, you know, even for a month at a time. And it, it all feels disjointed. Things I was working on, I don't have the same interest in. There's so much that can happen tangentially from doing your practice every day that it, to me, it's a, it's a momentum that develops with the work. And so like taking yourself out of that routine has been a detriment to, you know, the flow of my work. Okay. So when you're in your studio from 9am to 5pm, you are not painting all the time. No. Okay. So, so when it comes to your practice, your I don't like calling it a practice. It's not practice. You're, it's your masterful working. <laughs> you know, like you're not practicing. You're actually no, doing. No, I, I don't say that word often either. I just say working in my studio. The thing is this, I love your regimented lifestyle. You mock yourself about it and your girlfriend, ex-girlfriends mocked you about it. But like, I think it's incredibly admirable. I wish I could do that. I've always found that I don't generally have the resources. Like I end up uh, like, cause I work on paper. So I, things have to sit flat to dry. So like I run out of flat surfaces. Yeah. And so like, I have to stop working. So yeah. like I'm done. But like for you, you're a painter. So things are on the walls a little different, but beyond the like act of actually producing a piece of art, what are the other things that you do that you still consider part of your sort of day to day art practice? I always have a working, it's not a cycle, but a, a working portfolio, so to speak, of little mock-ups and things I'm thinking about compositionally or image-wise. And so some of my time will be just spending time looking at those things and wondering how I can improve them or what. If they're, if they're garbage, I need to just start from scratch on, you know, that just those general sorts of like working through ideas. But the majority, like in, in that amount of time per day might be... 20 minutes because they're the things I've been looking at for weeks in a way, you know, like, like they're not. And usually when I'm between, it's not even between shows, but like between, I might have three or four paintings going at once, but I don't know what that next one will be after those three or four are done. And so those paintings are starting to wrap up. I'm like, well, what's going to be next? And so I spend maybe half a day every day for a week, sort of like trying to come up with the next thing or whatever. And some of those things sit for a while and they're the same things I've been looking at for a year, but don't, take action on if that makes sense absolutely i've got two parts of the, the question but i'll start with just one question <laughs> um percentage of failures mm. so like when you're working like cause for me i have i'd say i'm like 40 45 success but you know so that leaves me with like 55 percent failures i still fail a lot in the studios so like what's your percentage these days because i know of course it changes over the course of your career kind of thing I would say the last five years it has jumped, but it's partly because you're sort of bored with what you were doing. And so you start trying, taking different risks and trying new things and trying new materials. And, and so there was definitely a period, I want to say from like maybe 2017 to 2019, where there was, it was like 70%. Like, and I only maybe made eight paintings that year or seven paintings. That, like there were some very low productive years. Right. Cause you're testing new ideas mm -hmm. and you're not actually sort of like taking the, the like knowing how the, the processes work and actually producing something good, you're still figuring it out. Okay. So, it's, so you worked for like three years on just sort of finding the right processes and techniques in order to even get to really strong works. At times that momentum thing's another thing like that, that time also, like I broke up with a long time girlfriend, my rent doubled. I was already paying, what was it? 
too much for a studio. I was paying for like seven, eight hundred in Raleigh for, but it was a really big studio. And so the my finances got very tight. And so then I ended up giving up the studio. Then I had to pick up work. And so then there was just like that momentum was sort of gone that that every day, like four four to seven days a week, depending on what was going on, was not there on the regular basis. So I think that contributes a lot too. And so that momentum or uh, being gone from something you're working on for a week or two really that I don't know how many times I came back to to like go to work and I was like, I'm not into this anymore. So a lot of false starts more than anything, but I consider those failures because you invested time in materials and then you chuck it. Well, so, okay. So do you scrape off and start again with a, a surface or do you, or do you chuck it and start on again? It depends on what my medium is. If, if it's oil, I would probably chuck it. If it's acrylic, I can just paint more acrylic on top. And okay. I was going to say, so wait, what, what mediums are you using now? I use both oil and acrylic. Okay. Okay. So then along that line of the, the, percentages of successes versus failures when you're working you said like you're working on three or four pieces and like and then you sort of don't know what the next step's going to be after that so the question is do you work sort of just like three or four pieces and that's it or do you work as do you have bigger series ideas grander ideas and you're trying to make them fit into it but within that like do you plan these series or do the series sort of define themselves once you finish the works they're kind of planned. So I'm, I don't know when this started, maybe 2009, 2007, eight, I'm not sure, thematically. And so fortunate enough to be with the gallery that would give me once a year, the whole gallery do whatever I wanted. And I say once a year, it was more like every 18 months probably with maybe a group show or like a three person show where there's some new work put in, but that freedom would sort of let me develop an idea and so like the i did in 2000 i guess it was 2009 i did a series called women and children first which was sort of sinking ship like just sort of looking at society and you know that sort of and the recession hadn't happened yet that was sort of like because i started the work in 2007 or 6 like the and then after the crash of 2008 through 10, basically it kind of lasted a little while, was a series called Crash, which is sort of based on that. But I was painting car crashes as sort of like a metaphor for the economy. And then in 2011, I painted one called, or painted one, I did a series called Concession Stand, which was sort of about being, our relationships to being in a marketplace, being both, as an artist, both a demographic, both a participant, you're also selling something yourself. And so that strange position to be in and so thematically over two or three years it would be this sort of like one focus and so sort of like all the little threads you could pull off of that idea so it helps me to have this umbrella to sort of direct the work i guess now within that i'm getting into so many pedantic little things i know but within that do you what about writings, like artist statements and all that kind of jazz? Do you do it yourself? Does somebody help you? Do you like doing uh, them? They're the worst. Uh, <laughs> I do them myself. Fortunately, the last couple of years, anything art writing related, I get to pass in front of my wife, who's a curator. She certainly moves things around, cuts things, adds big words, and <laughs> makes it all sound very good. So... I'm very fortunate to have that set of eyes and brain to punch things up. But it's it's a strange thing. It seems like the better an artist does, the less you can find an artist statement. 
It does. It's, it's a really strange thing where, in, especially when you're applying for, when you apply for more things and you're offered, it seems like that artist statement has got to be there. But when curators are coming to you and institutions, it's a different. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've looked at many of like the, the, the artists that I admire that, of course, are getting older kind of thing. That, and it, in the beginnings, they like their first book, let's say, or their first monograph, they, they have some great artist statements, but like by their fifth book or their 10th exhibition, it's nothing. It's a curator writes something and they don't write anything. Yeah. And it's fascinating how that happens. So I have some friends who are doing marginally well in the triangle. They're showing in like New York, LA, sometimes Europe. They do the art fairs, maybe even. They are in the, the pecking order, like middle. They're not the the top two percent they're definitely not where i consider myself actually like like in this sort of like trying to peck up to their level even and in their their artist statements disappear at that level too it seems hmm. i'm sure whoever's selling their work has notes and knows what to say and has their dialogue they write in the website about what that person is doing but that artist themselves writing something about it, it just seems to not matter anymore it's, it's a strange thing it is strange. I mean, it. I sort of get it because like in the beginning, you're start trying to prove yourself and say like, hey, I'm worth looking at kind of thing and I'm worth investing in or exhibiting or whatever. And then sort of at a certain point, you people are already convinced you, you have talent or you're skilled or whatever. And so you don't sort of have to prove yourself anymore. Well, it's a, this weird battle of attrition in a way where you're trying to build your career and build more notoriety and or critical interest. And every little addition to that, which is just like the next show you get, some curator asks you to be in a group show. There are all these little notches of approval and you're trying to reach some sort of, I don't know what that threshold is where it dumps over and they, everyone starts coming to you. And it, it stops being this like such a difficult thing to sort of plug away at, but it, it's a mystery. Like I, I really, I look I don't forward know what to that figuring that. I, I want to figure know. out that threshold. I look forward to finding out that threshold. Yeah. Someday in my career, I'll figure it out. Okay. You've talked a number of times already about having a gallery, this, this gallery. And I believe it's the same gallery I remember you being with when you first moved to Raleigh. Uh, probably, maybe, probably. I'm, I'm pretty sure it is. But they aren't around anymore, but so I'm not with a gallery currently. Oh. I, I am with something. I wouldn't call it a gallery. <laughs> Okay, but so, let's, on let's, let's say this all back as that yeah. then. So you have been with galleries. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of my big things, of course, and a lot of listeners are always wondering, is like, like, how do you get with a gallery? Like, so how did that relationship start? Was it you that approached them? They approached you? Or was it like mutual friends? You know, what, what's the story behind how that grew? Like a lot of smaller cities, Raleigh's, the art scene is a small community. I knew I wanted to show with them. I respected what they were doing, the work they were bringing in. And the owner was originally from Atlanta. And so there were a lot of Southeast, specifically Atlanta artists she was showing. And she had a uh, benefit for the SBCA where she was having kind of this community. It wasn't an art sale. It was an auction or anything like that. It was just a show that was sort of like this work will be available for this weekend only, blah, blah, blah. And I brought work to and i introduced myself and left it at that then and i came to a couple of openings but i, I didn't i'm i've never been good at networking i've never it just feels so unauthentic to try and schmooze your way through a situation so 
I got a residency there in Raleigh at a place called Art Space. That's a free studio space for six months with the show at the end of the an exhibition at the end of the residency. And they did, you know, nice postcards and stuff. And so I dropped off a postcard and was like, hope you guys can come by sometime. This is up for the next month, you know. And they came and they let me know that they came. And then she, I don't remember exactly how it came up, but she was like, I really like these two things. Would you bring them by? Maybe we can sell them or not sell them, but like show them. And like, I was like, yeah, yeah, we, we can do that or whatever. And then she did this really strange, like, it was like she was scared to ask me out. It was like this strange, like where she was, maybe you'd consider, would, would, would you want to have a show here next? It was this very slow. And I had to like, are you asking me to like, for you to represent me here? Like, is this what, what's happening? And, and she's like, yes, yes. I just, yeah. And so it's like, it's like she was shy to ask me. And, and so in that way, it was more organic in a sense, but I've, I've never been someone who will like push I have, this has disappeared, by the way, what I'm about to talk about is there used to be a number of galleries who would allow submissions. And I, I think as more and more artists became digitally savvy and digital images used to not be allowed, everything had to be on slide. When that changed around 2000, I want to say seven or eight. And then as more kids were coming out of school, knowing sort of more of the business of being an artist and documenting your work and sending them in and all that it exploded and everyone just they might have a window of like for these six weeks we're accepting submissions the rest of the year do not send us anything and so before that ended which was maybe five years ago i did a number of that where i'd, I'd hit a few different markets a couple of galleries in texas a couple of galleries in la a couple of galleries in chicago or philadelphia or it would be one time once per year i would sort of put together these packets and physical packets or like email both. packets really yeah mm, very nice and the only, you know, a lot of people wrote me back, but they might direct me to a gallery I didn't like as much. So it was nice to get correspondence. At least they weren't like you're awful or, you know, like dead, dead air. At least there was some sort of, but it, it's, this is, goes back to sort of like the, the networking part of it. And we we're talking about being in a closed circle too. Well, and that goes back to my point about moving and not keeping connections kind mm -hmm. of things, because Every community has their little network of uh, their circle, their closed circle. And like I'm finding that for me, what the mis one of the mistakes I made in my career was I didn't take a community that I'd been in. Like, so let's say Wilmington, because we can both relate to that. I didn't s take this community and then sort of leverage it to like get with a gallery in Wilmington, then that gallery in Wilmington would get me another gallery in some other bigger, you know, metropolitan area or, and then leverage that to get another bigger. So instead of staying in one place and building that from a strong foundation, I kept jumping and going, starting, basically having to start my career over. Two points about that statement that I would say aren't true, which okay. is that the, the idea that you could leverage a gallery into getting another gallery, they are generally in competition with each other. Really? So there's not, they might say, hey, I know this person and they're doing well with them, but they won't want to be in the same market. They won't want to be in the same state. So this comes, there are tiers of quality of gallery. And, and all of us kind of know this. There's the different tiers. There are the more decorative, pretty paintings, decorative, etc. cetera. Uh, up to people, are, you know, upper tier would be celebrating ideas, conceptual work that they're selling for, you know, $40,000 for those lower tier galleries there you could probably pick 10 cities in north carolina and you could show in all of those and there are a number of people who just do that or maybe you could just pick the southeast and say like these seven cities but most of the time with more contemporary work it 
it's competition and people have territory. So you can't show within 150 miles of with another gallery. In, in some places it might be, I know there was a gallery in Texas I was following that I was interested in. And then I heard that theirs was actually the whole South. Like you can't be another gallery. You can be in the Northeast and you can be on the West Coast, but you can't be like from. Well, see, I wonder whether that is like, okay. So like the idea of being what we'll call like geographically exclusive to one gallery that could on one hand be incredibly beneficial because, mm-hmm. you know, it basically drives all sales to the one place. Like, you know, it's consolidated, let's say kind of thing. But on the other hand, it limits your options in a lot of other ways. So like, have you had that personal experience of, of a geographical limitation on a gallery? Oh, with that gallery in, in Raleigh, I was talking about there's was, I want to say it was 150 miles. So like Richmond was just outside of it. Wilmington was just outside of it, but I think Charlotte was in it. Which Charlotte's a big, pretty big market. But they they just recently have a couple of decent temporary art galleries. One of them is owned by uh, it's a race car driver's wife. He's the junior. What is Earnhardt? No, maybe, yeah, maybe Petty Dale Earnhardt Jr. Let's go with that one. Okay, we'll go with that one. I don't know. I highly doubt that listeners are race car fans as much as I am. <laughs> The you do know I leave all of these things in, sure. right? Okay, I'm, I'm just, you know, we're having a conversation. <laughs> so I don't think it's as detrimental because those galleries are kind of staking a claim what they think your value is. And, and so it's it doesn't read to me that way when, let's say, I could be in that gallery in Raleigh and be in a gallery in Atlanta. Two totally different markets, two totally different, I don't know, sets of clients, whatever you're going to call it, versus like being in Asheville, Greensboro, Raleigh or Durham. Wilmington and Charlotte and people vacation, travel, work and all those same, like it, it, it becomes saturation and becomes not. So there's an exclusivity part of it, I think is actually helps the artist. All right. What about selling art? Now, I mean, I know over the course of your career, as far as I can tell, cause of course you might, I, we haven't been like the closest of friends and we haven't really well, ever really to... spoken business either. Yeah. No, it's my own, partly my own fault. I've said this numerous times. <laughs> like I left the country, like yeah. it happens. So the, but, uh, for a long time I, I, that I knew you, you sold very consistently. Mm, and then yeah. I know you had a point where you, something happened. I, I think you changed your style and then it became a little difficult, more difficult to sell. I'm assuming at this point, knowing what you, you know, seeing what you've done recently, that you're doing back on a track of pretty consistently able to sell. No. <laughs> and I, well, your social media looks like you're selling really well. What's strange in this? I don't know. I don't. This is again the universe. Like I, I didn't promote some sort of like a moving away, get it while you can, kind of thing. But I've, I've had a crazy amount of sales since July and August than I've had in the last two years, like more than I sold all of last year, you know, in these, this period. And it's a lot of the work has been there for five years, seven years. Like it's, it's not brand new stuff that, you know what I mean? Like, so it's, it's, I, I can't predict it and I'm not so good at promoting. I like posting what I'm working on, but I don't do like, get it, you know, this week only, you know, I don't even do prints of my work. I don't sell a limited edition, whatever, which I have friends who, who, I don't know, they make maybe an extra, like 3000 every six months after doing a print run, but you have to get to a certain level before you can sell prints. I'm not saying you're not at that level, well, but like, I'm just thinking in general, like there's a certain caliber of an artist that, that when you think of, I want to, pr- I want a print of that. 
Yeah. Last time people ask me because they want something. Sure. And but they don't want to pay. Even I'm not that expensive. But they want to pay five thousand dollars for that. Right. Okay. Within that, though, I have seen that you you okay because a lot of artists do this, and I've noticed you do it too. You do your big sort of a your your masterful show pieces that you do in museum installations and gallery installations, but you also do small works and you do present those and sell those and all this kind of stuff. So. What's the what's the thought for that? Is it is it the idea of like I want to make some affordable things for some people that might want something of mine, or is it for just for you own yourself saying I'm going to do some sketches and they're going to be small, and they happen to turn out well, so maybe I'll sell them. It's almost always dictated by my studio space and what what's on my calendar deadline wise. If I have a show, but if I have a show in a year or two, like there's time or whatever. There will be more preliminary, more small things, and more variety of sizes. I don't even know, like, I to, like, cause I don't think about it so much that way. Like, it's it's sort of like just what. So I'm just like, I've had these panels. I should make something on these panels that are that are twenty by twenty, and I hadn't. Right, but the fact that you don't think about it is is a thing a thing in and of itself. Because sure. like me as a, you know, my background is photography, so like I have to actively think. I should print this at X size because I believe people would like it or it presents mm-hmm. well at this size, whatever. And so like you make a variety of sizes for different price points, for different people, different environments, whatever. So like that's my background that we can we can choose what what, you know, once we have an image, we can then print it at a variety of sizes. Whereas you you actively choose to paint something in a size kind of thing and it's that's it. In some of it is the weird logic I apply to things that don't always make sense. But what, I, what weird logic? I love weird logic. <laughs> I like for there to be something in human scale in the work. And, and so whether that's, I'm trying to think of an object. So the car crashes, for example, were intentionally, I wanted the cars to be life-size. Like there was something about that. And then they ended up being slightly smaller than life-size because of logistics. Like it was just these things were eight by 11 feet. They felt like billboards and they're set into a space. So they're not like, you know, right in front of you. But in that I might have a traffic cone that is actual human scale or, you know, I've done shopping carts and things that were actual, like what a size of a shopping cart would be. And you pair that down with smaller and smaller things, plants or animals or hands, figures, whatever. So the logic I apply is sort of like if it's 16 by 16 inches, there's I don't have anything to put in that space because it's. There are things that are smaller than 16 by 16 inches. Well, you know what I'm saying, though. So so you can't fit a car in that. No. So when I'm thinking about size and scale, which aren't really the same thing, the image often dictates what size I make it in. And sometimes it's, it's intention as well. Yeah. All right. How about pricing? I'm a horrible at it. I, I always end up, it seems I, I underprice myself. Like, so like I end up saying a price because I always spit out the people are like, Hey, how much is this? I'm like 500. And they're like, Oh yeah, 500. I'll, I'll buy that. And they just buy it without even negotiating. I'm like, damn it. I could ask for more. <laughs> thing. Like, how did you, like, did the galleries help you with your pricing or did you sort of do it on your own? So like, what, how have you like, I guess, what structure or thing have you created for yourself to figure out what you think the right prices are? It's always felt a little bit like what the market will dictate. And I know that's a weird thing to say, but... It's true. I've been told by so many other collectors that I'm cheap for the quality that I make. But if there were 20 people like them, 
buying work, I could, you know, add 40% or something and they probably still buy it. it. So, so in some ways it's sort of, you push and push and see what, if it changes. And I don't mean like you suddenly jump from selling stuff for $1,200 to 4,000 and just more than doubles, like what you're asking. It's not a big number for anyone these days. Like $4,000 is not it's a big number for me. I'm not buying a it's $4,000. still an okay number for me. Like that's, that's plenty. It's still like a down payment on a car. You know, it's, it's like, it, it's, I always equate it to real world things that I can't afford. That's right. We all <laughs> so, do that. Like I did, I'm always like, oh, if I sell this, I can buy a new computer. Like that's my new thing. You're like, great. So when we were both showing at the gallery here. I never showed there. You didn't? I, could, I had a piece in a show once. That's not what I remember. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm not, I'm, I'm only sorry because I, my memory is that you were. No, I hung out there all the time, but they never, they never, but you got to, I remember we're talking about a gallery called Simmons, right? They were young and new and all this. And, and photography is a very tough sell like across the board. And I was doing straight, pure photography back then. So full knowledge, you know, I had lots of conversations with the two of them and photography is a tough one. Paint in, especially like you know that's changed, but I know yeah a lot of it's regional too. Like you know, in this region where we're talking about painting, sculptures, these kinds of things are much more yeah. collected than photography because it's a coastal town, and so like photographs get mold and all kinds of things in them. So like they're much more difficult to maintain here. So I get it. I never hold any grudge against them about that because it's a tough market. Did I have an exhibition there? I feel like you and Tim had a two-person, but I'm... Me and Tim. It's possible. Yeah. Anyway, so... That's how great the show went for me. <laughs> that I don't even remember having it. So, yeah. Okay. It's possible. So, when I first started showing with them, I was selling work. Like, my large size maybe at that time was maybe like 40 by 50 inches. That would have been like $800. And they took a medium-sized piece I'd done, sold it like a week after I dropped it off, and they didn't tell me. I, I said, well, you should put 800 on this because this is expensive. This is a lot to me. And they sold it for like 1500 didn't tell me. And oh. sold it very quickly. And it blew my mind in that sense. Like that was so much money to me. And this was 2000 or 2001. I don't remember what exact year it was. But so that number I wouldn't have asked for myself. So they, they set my prices in a way here that I built off of. And so when I started showing in Raleigh after my time in New York, it had kind of a little more than doubled, I guess, what I was asking mm-hmm. in about eight years. You know what I mean? Like, and... Maybe I don't do this often enough. I, last time I raised my prices was probably 2015, and it, it wasn't a lot. It was like 10. percent So something that was 5,000 now is 5,800. Like it's not like a huge jump. Do you know that's not actually 10. percent That's whatever. Okay, okay, just making sure. Yeah, <laughs> but we're, you get my point. We're not, we're not like, mathematicians. I didn't, it's fine. I didn't just add, you know, 25 percent to everything, and suddenly it, it's just an incremental. One of the more valuable resources for stuff like this, by the way, is a company called Creative Capital. Mm -hmm. And the North Carolina Arts Council was sponsoring a, they probably still are, uh, once a year, three-day workshop. And people are invited by nomination only. So they usually ask art professionals around the state, like, who would you recommend? Who hasn't done this already? Because they've been doing it for 10 years or something. I did it maybe five years ago, seven years ago, probably seven years ago. And they talk about that as part of the business is like, you should try to raise your prices 10% every year. And I've not done that by any means, but you throw in a really big recession in the middle of all that. And so it's still a hard thing. And I was having this conversation an hour ago with our host here 
And now there are people who won't buy something unless it's expensive. There are people who's feel like there's no value unless it says $20,000 on the sticker. But it's hard to get to those people in the sense that you need to be in a room full of other $20,000 things. And so by context and company, that becomes kind of important for what you can what you can command. And then the other thing is like I would to price what I think I should be pricing at, I would price out of North Carolina's sort of market level, but I'd still be under price for a larger market like New York or Miami or L.A. I'm fascinated. You keep throwing out different cities each time you talk about cities. I'm really, I'm <laughs> this like, is the first big cities that I come to mind. I know. I'm like, are these consistent cities? Because he keeps changing cities. <laughs> I'll just stop naming cities. Cities I said before. No, no. You, you, you can mention cities. It's just interesting. How, like One time it's like Austin, Houston, Chicago. The next time it's LA, New York, Miami. The next time it's New York, Paris, like Germany, Berlin. So this is interesting. It's no judgment. It's just fascinating that like, you keep pulling out new cities each time you mention cities. So, so pricing's hard. And one thing that still bothers me now is that for, for an original painting of mine, this was when I was showing at that same gallery, Contemporary Gallery in Raleigh. They did a big contemporary photography show. And um, a lot of prints that were in the show, very nicely presented in frames, edition of 20, one of 20 or whatever, same cost as my painting. And that there were 20 of them really... I, I didn't get it. Depends on the name, the reputation. I mean, it, all, the... it all depends on that. But I, I still felt like for this thing that you have multiples of, unless it was like one of three, I, I have this strange. Well, but that's the thing. Well, and that's the difficult part of the pricing structure stuff that I keep running into is like, I know photographers that have been in the industry for 40 years and they've slowly incrementally broke, taken their stuff up. And I I seen their most recent works like after after forty years in the industry, I think it's still pretty affordable. It's like less than two thousand five hundred dollars for a, a print. But painters, because they're one of a kind, like they had their prices are substantially higher. I totally lost my train of thought on where I was going with this. I was talking about the editions and the number and original work. So you're sort of saying that, um, and you're saying that. Uh, seeing people who've been doing it for 40 years, the work is still kind of affordable. Well, but, well, and, but okay, the, but the part of it is like, it's reputation. That's the bottom line. It's not about like quantity of editions or singular one-of-a-kind paintings, but it's the reputation of that person. Mm -hmm. That's it. Like, and for me, it's like, I keep saying this, like I say this to students all the time. I say this to anybody that I ever asks me questions about the art world. It's basically, it always goes back to your reputation. And like you have to have a reputation not only as a good producer of quality work, but you have to have a reputation as a person who's enjoyable to work with. Like nobody wants to work with an asshole. It's very true. I know because I was an asshole for many years. And so, well, <laughs> what I was going to say is people can get away with it to a degree, but you can't be. There was someone we were talking about earlier. I won't name names who it's it's uh, difficult. Yeah, and, and and there are people who won't work with that person again, to their detriment and their career's detriment. Right. But, um, and th well, and that's what I'm getting to with reputation yeah. is like you know. So you're th thinking about pricing, like so you you know your painting is sitting next to a photograph. There's an edition of twenty of that photograph, but that that photographer may have an exponentially more world renowned reputation than you, who more or less is you know 
nothing personal. I don't mean this in criticism, but like you're an East Coast artist, and that's the extent of your reputation. And North Carolina at that. Okay, well, yeah, I was going to give so, you up to New York, but no. <laughs> okay, East Coast uh, regional is is much you know. The East Coast is still East. a region. We'll still go, go with the East Coast. Be, I'm being generous. Thank you. <laughs> so, so part of it is reputation, and that, that's one of those things that, like, how do you build the reputation? You you do things in a timely fashion. A gallery asks you for images of something. You send them images of something. You the deadline for this show. They need to hang and promote and photograph or whatever they're doing. In addition to just putting it on the wall, you get it there in time for them to do those things. And so you. I agree. Just be a pro. Be a professional. Yeah. I totally am on board with that. But then how do you build that? Like, it's one of those things like, okay, I'll try and use you as an example. So, like, you are very professional, at least from my perception. You're very professional. You do all these things. But so, like, then how do you get to that next level? So, like, how do you get to that next, we'll call it market or that next opportunity? Like, have you been to art fairs? Have you attended art fairs? Yes. Okay, great. But you haven't yes. like had your work in art fairs. No. Okay. Me neither. It's fine. So the the but the point is like, how do you get there? Like, what's the like? So you know what I mean? Like, I know. I know. We sort um, of hit a, a like a plateau in our careers where like we're we're doing pretty well, selling, have galleries. You know, we have a good reputation. How do you take your reputation to that next thing? This is the long road around versus like living in New York as we were talking about, or other some city I said earlier it, it's those notches and so one thing I've learned just by talking to, talking to other artists and then I've learned so much from my wife over the last two years I had no idea how what a curator did on a day-to-day basis and or how museums work and so getting sort of that insight gives me a whole different perspective on how things happen like the camera museum here uh, is not a big museum it's a small regional there are you know throughout the southeast let's say 25 museums like the Cameron those curators, those directors all talk to each other. They generally will carry some of the same shows because they're sort of have the same budgets. So like the traveling exhibition that came from Savannah now is in Wilmington or came from Richmond, maybe even or, or Raleigh. And so working with them or, or someone picking you up, so to speak, and putting you giving offering you a show builds those little notches in that network a little bit. So they talk to each other. And so it becomes this, that leads to, let, let's say, uh, like I know a curator at Davidson who used to be at ArtSpace, but now she makes recommendations to other institutions about things and has done some really amazing contemporary shows at Davidson. So she talks to the NCMA. She talks to, let's say, the Fowler in San Francisco or Right, uh, the and because or... you were at art space, you made friends with that person, and so now that person has then gone on in their own career to yeah. a better institution. So therefore, that's the; those are the ways that it's going to happen. And this yeah. is one of those things. Like again, it goes back to me. Like, like don't be an ass. Like, no, well, and, and sometimes it's no opportunities too small. Yeah, and and it's kind of I'm not good at that. Sometimes there are, are things I could do. Like there are so many juried exhibition opportunities all over the country every month, and the ones I choose, I, I might, because they all cost money for the most part. It's like $10 an image or $25 an image. It depends on who the curator is and if I want to get my work in front of that curator. Okay. Got to ask, has that ever worked for you? Yes. I love it. Tell me a story about that. Because I have not heard any stories where like entering a jury competition because of the juror's name and you wanted that you're working in front of the juror that actually then came, something came out of that beyond yeah. that exhibition. Mm-hmm. So- 
Please tell me a story. I hadn't been in Raleigh long. I had just started showing with that gallery after the weird girlfriend, boyfriend, do you want to maybe work with me full time and not occasionally. The director of the NCMA, Dr. Larry Wheeler, was during a, an exhibition by the Raleigh Fine Arts Society, which is more of a, what it sounds like to contemporary art. It's you know, traditional. A, it's a long, it's been in Raleigh for 40 years and so I entered it and he gave me best in show and then made a studio visit. And then two or three years later, bought a couple of paintings like, and I have had dialogues with the MCMA about buying work and other places because he's talked about me, have called me. And so that that's one story, you know. From my experiences working with galleries, I I have sort of mixed scenarios of like this this situation, which I'm going to ask about now, which is that some galleries, I feel like share the names of the people who purchase your works and some galleries do not give the names of the people who collect your work. Have you, because so my question is sort of like this is like, if you're working with a gallery and let's say they don't give the names of the, these collectors, how do you then sort of build relationships with the collectors if and when the gallery stops representing you or anything like that? So the only experience I've had with that was with Simmons Wright in in their di- dis- dissolving in the middle of the night. And you remember that time. I do. Well, I don't need to go into all the details. It's, nope. it's, um, and neither so, do the listeners. You don't need to yeah. research it or anything. I had trouble getting work back, and I felt like the least they could do was share with me who they're who had bought my work. And so I could at least maintain, they could know where I was, what I was doing, join my mailing list, whatever. Wait, uh, you have a mailing list? I do. Email list. Like a, do you actually like send out like email newsletters? Or I have not done that in about a year and a half, but I was doing it like at least once a year, but sometimes twice a year. Just like, here's, did it work for I you? I don't know. I just like, but keeping people in the know, like I know people who do it religiously like three times a year, four times a year. But with, when the gallery in, Ra- in Raleigh stopped being a thing, I knew because they want to know you. Like from the, they want to know more about the work you're making, and so they would come to the openings and they would want to talk to you about what before they bought something. They want to know the story behind it, and so in that case, all, all those people are still part of my universe in terms of. And and the funny thing is, I have like there's like 20 people who pay me every year. You know, it's the same 20 people. I have a longtime patron who we're doing this podcast house out who has bought work consistently for 20 years. And so that's if I had twice as many of those in some in other markets, I would I would feel amazing. I would feel like like it wouldn't be such a hard to be the working artist and to make rent and to all that. So one of the things that I wonder about a lot is the, the is the are there a lot of what we'll call like traditional patrons anymore? Because a lot of the people I talk to, they say they oh I collect whatever they say I'm an art collector this kind of stuff. They collect like one like what they think of as like the best piece by an artist, but then they don't buy another piece from them. So they buy one piece that is the what they think is the seminal piece. So like, are you having experiences of like people repeating, like buying more and more of your works, like the traditional patronage kind of an idea? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Great. I, yes. Yes. Fabulous. Yeah. And there's like the, where we're at being one of them. There are three people in Raleigh. I would definitely put in that category who have, and one guy has probably spent $40,000 on me over 12 years or 15 years. And then another person has probably spent 
$25,000 over 10 years. Like, and so every couple of years they buy something They They like the new work or they don't, but, or not don't, but like they find room for it and they often have a storage unit with art in it. So they rotate things in their house. Like they're, they live with it, but they don't live with everything they own okay. all the time. But do you see a difference between those kinds of collectors? Like, so like the collectors that will be patrons who will buy and buy and buy, is there something different in that relationship than the people who just buy one piece and then don't buy another one or buy one piece and then don't buy another one for 10 years? You know, so like the, the consistent purchasers versus the, the, the random purchasers. I think it all has to do with disposable income. <laughs> so always, but there are people who, who would, I would say had bought modest things. Maybe they, they were, it was a thousand dollars or it was $800. And then five years later, they show up and buy something bigger or they buy something. So th they repeat, but it's not in the same price point. Yeah. Or but no, no, not, not the same volume of work by any means, but right. Okay. No, what I'm trying to understand is the, the relationship you have with these people, are they different? Three of them for sure. Part of it is that the patronage aspect of it. So they are more interested in what I'm working on, what I'm doing. They want to make studio visits. They have parties and invite me. I mean, they're like more, it becomes a more social aspect. I, yeah, I don't know quite what else to add to it, but there's a, a difference for sure. Okay. Yeah. I don't know what that difference is. I've never had those patrons that like buy and buy and buy over the years. Mm -hmm. My entire career is pretty much sort of one off. They'll buy either a number of small pieces or usually one, you know, one big piece kind of thing, but then they don't come back. And I don't, I, I always wonder whether it's like something I did or didn't do. Did, should, should I have followed up with them? Should, you know, like, so like, did I do something wrong kind of thing? Like I, I, I no. doubt it. Okay, great. And I, I think, well, I, I just mean, I think it, it's sometimes context. Like, I don't even know how else to put it in the, like. Well, for example, I, I look at my own parents' collection, which they don't, they have a modest collection. But in their collection, they pretty much only have one piece by everybody they admire. They don't have multiple pieces by mm -hmm. anybody. And they like it that way. So, like, that's their collection. That's their style of collecting mm -hmm. versus some other people who, like, find a a person or a movement or a, or a, a regional whatever like cause i'm thinking of some other collectors i know that that and then they sort of latch onto that and they will buy again and again and again from that same thing so like well so the deep pockets thing again one one of the things i've experienced i just experienced it this month but i also experienced it maybe three years ago no it was like two years ago there's a patrons clients in tampa who commissioned me to do something custom and then bought a painting the same size to go to a different place. And so I drove two paintings down to Tampa. And then I want to say a year and a half later, their mountain home in Blowing Rock, North Carolina, they needed some artwork for. And so like, what do you have that's like this? We like these pieces. These would make sense with our color scheme. It always comes down to sometimes those things. Sad, but true. And so that's a repeat thing where these people have multiple homes. So it's also a, multiple places to enjoy those works of art and the other one uh that happened this month i'm trying to think this guy has bought some seems benjamin he has in his home in raleigh maybe five paintings that he bought over probably six years some of them he bought at the same time like two two here and then two here 
and he wanted some work for his mountain home. And so he, he just bought an $8,000 painting for his mountain home. So right? we just need to friend people that have multiple homes. Basically. I don't know. It's just one of those things you don't, we don't think about, I don't think about, Oh, you know, I'm going to get their beach house. I'm going to get their mountain house and I'm going to get, going to get their lodge in Montana or whatever. You know what I mean? Like I'm just thinking about the market I'm in and like the people, it's just something I can't imagine having that much money. That's what I'm getting. At. It's, it's true. Like, I can't so. either. Now, do you, do you actively, so at this point you don't have a gallery. No. So how do you connect with buyers at this point? Instagram's been a thing. Is it? I don't have a great number of followers, but I have a whole bunch of who I've never met or met in person or, you know, and then. Have you sold anything through Instagram? Yes. Wow. Tell me that story. It was also someone who bought work before. It wasn't. Okay. And I, I posted it. He, he messaged me an hour later and was like, how much? Just. And some, sometimes that's timing. They were building a new house and they decided to buy that painting instead of put it in a fireplace. It was like. The what, same they couldn't put them. a fireplace and the painting? They could not. So, uh, <laughs> what was the original question? Uh, Connecting sa sales through Instagram. Yeah, that's happened. How, not being with a gallery and how do I maintain sales? Some of it are those repeat clients who still poke me every once in a while. What's coming up? What's, you know. Okay, but wait, they poke you. Like, so mm -hmm. what, what I'm asking though is sort of what do you do? I don't do enough. <laughs> I'll say that. I do mostly just Instagram. I, like I said, I do the, used to do the mailer more frequently. It's been a year and a half maybe since I've done one. I'm, I will be doing one about Hamburg and the show I have coming up at the Kemper Art Museum in Raleigh. But yeah, I don't, really don't do enough. I've never been good at reaching out to sell or to sort of do that sort of thing. But I, I'll see those people socially where I used to before recent events. And so there would be a conversation. I'd see them every six months, maybe at a function that was art related. And they'd be like, oh, what are you working on? Oh, we should come by sometime. But, and for the most part, I get to be a normal person with them. Those people, I don't, I don't feel like I'm somehow <laughs> I'm making hand gestures. Being inauthentic or trying to sell them something. And that's the thing. I mean, if you try to sell, it never works. Like if you have full intention, like I know many circumstances where I've been at an opening or something and somebody's been like, Oh, that's so and so over there. They have this huge collection. And and I've tried to talk to them and it fails miserably. Like and you know, so like when they know you know they buy kind of thing, like it it often ends up awkward in one way or another. And and it never I've I've never had the experience where knowing somebody could collect my work and that I intentionally go to talk to them because of that reason, it never pans out. It, it's all, it's almost always the, I just got to know somebody and I, and they happen to be a collector and I happen to be an artist. And mm -hmm. so we happen to connect. Those are the ones that always seem to work out Yeah, for me. Grants. Have you ever applied for them? Have you ever received them? Yes, I have mostly the regional local arts council grants. There's also a North Carolina Arts Council grant that's a statewide thing that's, I think it's 10 grand, that they award eight to 10 people every two years, I think is the, and I've applied to that probably seven or eight times. And I've been, it's very nice to get feedback. I've been told I was the runner up twice, which means if someone dies and or is ruled ineligible, like they're not a resident of the state, that I would have gotten it. It's like, it's so I get to be to, really close. Yeah. You know? Almost. Bridesmaid you know? twice. It's lovely. And then I've applied for, I think Paul Krasner 
Grant at least twice. Seriously, I'm I'm horribly intimidated by the Paula Krasner one. I mean, it, it's an amazing grant. I would love to apply for it, but just even the idea of applying for it is like that just feels out of my realm. You shouldn't. Is it a tough grant like to apply it, it for? It is. I mean, there. So it's very competitive. I know that. One, but like, one of the things that the Creative Capital Workshop talked about was that t- typically people who apply for that caliber of thing, it's ten times before they get it. So it's not like they don't eventually get it. It's just it's being consistent and doing it and doing it. And your work's going to change and get better, likely get better and And your text and, that's a part of the application yeah. will get better and better. Yeah. But I, I do know that it all comes down to the work first and foremost. So if they're not moved by the work, they're not going to read anything about the work. You know what I mean? So it, it that's sort of the – like I did the Bemis Center residency. It was also super competitive. And as a current resident, we got to sit in on the next process the next round of jurors and they had something like 700 applicants and uh it was three panels three person panel and then we just got to peek in i mean because it was going on it was like from nine to five hundreds of slot you know a day and what we what was enlightening was i don't know how all programs like that work grants and or residencies when they're jurying something but their kindness in the first 200 versus the last 200 was remarkably different maybe even the last 400 but those first maybe two 300 250 there were there were a lot of things being set aside that last 200 it was like next 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 there was like it gets tiring and boring and monotonous it does so it so what i'm getting at is bemis particularly they are presented in the order they arrive so it's not alphabetical so it's all up to the artist to get them in at whatever time other places might do alphabetical, and I think that would be a detriment because of that fatigue. My, I have an R. My last name's an R. I have a D. I'm good. Yeah, you're good. That's why all those A through Gs are getting everything. There you go. Yeah, we'll blame it on that. <laughs> and then with those other things, like saying it takes 10 times to sort of get one of those things, is that it's still that one panel on that given days, and you can't look at it as like a they don't like me or they're like it. it. I, so I got Bemis the first time I applied that I've never gotten anything as good that I would say was like that sort of caliber of experience and notch of the, one of those notches of accreditation, you know? And I feel like that was, I got luck. I, like that, that day, whatever order my thing arrived in and, you know, it's good to so. know that though, that, that some places might, put it in order of arrival so like you know don't wait to the last minute because then you're going to be the last 50 and that's not going to be good because everybody's gonna be tired and hungry and want to go home yeah Yeah. and they've already they've they've got their whatever you call it like fatigue they've just seen so much they're then a lot of things like arts councils like state art councils or other things have to be super conscious of gender and race and so it's sometimes too bad like for, for me, like I, I know, like I don't have an important voice right now. I'm, I'm a middle-aged white man with a middle-aged background, middle-class background. Like it's, it's just what it is. And so I can't feel like, oh, they're, I'm being discriminated because I'm not, I'm not being discriminated against. It's, it's how it is. You know, I and was discriminated against in that way directly. I went to a job interview just out of grad school, I'm not going to tell the name of the school, but I went to the school, went to the job interview, flew all the way down there. They, I was there for like a week. I met everybody, all this. And then the dean came to me. He's like, 
I love you. You're perfect for this job. Unfortunately, we have to hire a woman. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> like, for him to say that, though, I was like, Ooh. I would rather be told that, actually. Than, I felt good knowing that. Yeah. Then, then to feel like. Um, <laughs> but sounded that, horrible when he yeah. said it. <laughs> no, I understand that. I mean, I'm not going to talk about this too much because it's not my place to, but my wife runs into that with her career. She be a white woman who's an African, Africanist. She's an African art curator. And so many institutions want a person of color in that position, but there are no candidates. So it becomes With this, the right educational qualifications. Yes, That's yes. the thing. Yeah. Yeah. They're coming. They're just not at this moment when everyone so much wants that in that position, a person like that in that position. So it's, and it's hard to know how credentialed she is. And yeah. So it's an interesting time, a shift of everything like this. You know, I mean, the, the white males have dominated for so many centuries that the, that finally it's sort of balancing out or starting to balance yeah, out and a I little don't, bit. Like, like I said, like, uh, I, I know my voice is pretty like boring. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I am a white man. Like I can't do anything about that. It's what I was born and, into. And then I, you know, I actually told the director of the NCMA that when we were talking, he interviewed me recently for something he was doing. And he was asking me about meeting my wife who he hired. And I said, when I met her, she asked me what my paintings were like. And I said, well, I'm a middle aged white guy who paints white things. Like I, it's my background. That's like my concerns are often yeah. just minor sexy, it's, it's, half naked women. What yeah. I know white like, women specifically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know so, it's hard because uh, well, like I've been looking at a lot of like grants and residencies and stuff like this recently and stuff. And a lot of them are very specific. Like, so they, they want thing. They want um, artwork about like ecology. I, I really despise that. That, that, that trend. Yeah, well, that's sort of my point. Is like it, it's, it's a difficult. I, I, I think it's very detrimental to the whole the the, the art world as a whole when we're over specializing, like a residency or a grant that says like, oh, we want to do this about ecology or about feminism or about even like even like within medium saying, oh, we only want to do about technology. It, it limits so many people on so many great opportunities that could be absolutely amazing. But like, and like, I'll read through these. This is one I've run into, which you you are starting to run into now at your age, where I will read through the grant. Grant will be like, perfect, 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 perfect. I'll get the last one and it says, you have to be under 35 years old. I'm like, why the fuck do you have to be under 35 years old? Like, what, what's, why, why is that? It why was, why is that more important? When I realized I wasn't an emerging artist anymore. <laughs> when you, when, <laughs> for those emerging artists. That's right. Yeah. When the 35 and under grants are no longer available to you, it's like, fuck. I was saying what I despise uh, is calls for artists that are very specific to whatever that entity is. If it's a municipality who wants something about a neighborhood, something that reflects the state's history or. That's a North Carolina thing now. Well, no, that's a lot of places want they want things to be you know turned a certain way and to be about especially public art especially yeah. like but the the thing that i always feel like is like you're asking me not to do what i do i'm automatically like turned off by the idea that okay i have to like change my process alter all these things that i would normally not consider to make something you appreciate it to even ask me to apply for and not, not that I'm always asked to apply, but there have been times where it's like, you should apply for this. And someone passes me the opportunity and I read it. And I'm like, no, like I, this is, 
it's more work for me to try to make something to do that than for me to just make work. And I've done two public art projects in the last five years. And I will only do them if the budget is huge. Like I, I, they were two very small budget things. I lost money on both of them. And it was in the time suck where each of them were like three to six months. I'll never get back and storage of that stuff because it, with all things, municipality, it seems city, state, it, they move very slowly. So they give you a timeline by the state and that moves two or three times. And then it, it anyway, not, I'm not happy about those things. There are some very good ones out there for sure. It's, it's just like, if it's not pushing a big number, 40,000, 60,000, 90,000, it's almost not worth it. Oh yeah. Well, don't, but don't even start on me on the amount of time to write a grant or a proposal or anything like that. And then the amount of time in reporting it and all that the paperwork and all that shit, unless it's up in the over $25,000, it's almost not worth the effort that is involved in those for sure. Yeah. I'm on board with that. I've given money back in small grants in the first, well, I've only did it one time. I can't act like I've done it all the time. I did it one time <laughs> and they freaked out, but I, I had found what I was applying for. I wanted a better camera, a digital SLR to document my work and to take reference photos. And, um, uh, I asked for $1,200. I found what I wanted for like eight or 900 and I gave them back three or $400. And they were like, what? Yeah. You're not supposed to do that. Uh, well, it, but, I was like going to lie about my accounting and just pull some receipts out and try and say that. Yes. Well, I that's what most so. other artists do <laughs> <laughs> or they will just it was make more it more of a house for me to try and come up with some way to like that, you know, fabricate a budget. Yeah. I had one receipt that had, this is what I bought. Here's should have Photoshopped that receipt or something that well. like you could, you could have pulled <laughs> it off, man. All right. Let's wrap this up. So my last question that I ask everybody, of course, is just any advice that you have for sort of up and coming, in your case, so artists, so up and coming artists that, uh, you know, you wish maybe that you knew when you were young. Wish I knew. Or wish you knew now. <laughs> I don't know. The, so the interesting thing, there's a number of questions you're, or this podcast, your podcast directly kind of addresses and is sort of trying to dig at is how it happens for people and what are the steps to take to help other people do the same things? Wait, let me go back a step. I do have one last question, actually. Why have you not chosen to try to be a bigger artist, let's call it? like You seem to be sort of proud of being a regional artist and you well, are a regional artist. So like, I'm not proud of it. I'm just honest about it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it's more of an acceptance <laughs> thing than a conscious choice. Well, it's how do you define success, right? It is, which is and, the question. Well, so uh, for me, it's always been, can I do it sustainably? And I don't mean in an environmentally way. I just mean like, can I sustain the ability to just go to my studio every day? The answer is usually no. I've had stretches. I've had, I had like a seven year run. It was great. Broken up by three years of working on jobs to like the last year and a half, two years has been mostly painting, which is great. But the, for me, defining success is like, existing in a way where every month isn't do i gotta give blood you know plasma or blood? plasma sorry okay good. and so for me it's never been like oh i have to you know i must show in new york or i must show in this other city or I must get to an art fair it, it's been more like it's satisfying for me to make the work you know so i don't make the work to sell the work always and it's fortunate that enough stuff is sold 
you know what I mean? Like it's not, but whenever I have sort of hit that mark, I got to make something someone's going to buy because I've got to eat next month or I got to pay this rent. They're the, usually come out so contrived and they, I can see that they're bad. I can see that they aren't saying much. So when, usually when I'm excited about the work, it translates to a sale because someone else sees that or it hits that with them, you know, it hits what, whatever that tenure was or that thing that made them want to buy it resonated with them. So for me, success is that just being able to sustain Would I like all those things. Yes. It's not that I'm lazy. You already said I have a work ethic. It's the, that I, I, I don't feel, I never called you lazy. No, 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 no. This is what I'm getting at. It's okay. like, I'm lazy about that okay. aspect of the career where I'm, I'm not really working hard at getting to another notch in the, well, but that's sort of my question is like, is there a reason? Like, did you, are you saying, are you, did you make a conscious choice to not try to go to that? Or did I, it, is it just, I don't think it's necessary for my happiness, joy, success, whatever definition you want to have. So much more lazy than that. It's okay. like not feeling like making the effort. And, and, and I've been fortunate in that a lot of the success I have had and things that have happened, I haven't had to work that hard for. Well, you're a white, a, an attractive white man sure. in America. Come on. <laughs> I tried to be savvy and like the, with the story about the uh, entering the jury show that actually did something for my career about some of those things. But in, in terms of, uh, you know, I don't live in Raleigh and have a studio in New York that I fly to like three times a year to meet people. It's You sound bitter about that. No, I'm not okay. bitter about it. I actually was, when he told me, I was like, that is so smart. I it would is. never thought of that. It's insanely and, smart. It um, really is. It is. And it's a write off. And your air travel there is a ride. I mean, so I was just like, yeah, that you, that makes sense. God damn you. It's very cunning. But I, I'm also like just lazy about it. And then, okay. yeah. It's as good an answer as any. Yeah. Okay. Back to advice. Uh, so much that we, we've touched on. I mean, we're just talking about the way things sort of evolve. And advice wise, I felt like the biggest thing for me, especially coming out of school, not grad school, but undergrad was... Being asked to do crappy exhibitions in restaurants and or bars and or coffee shops and not feeling like that wasn't the right venue or like exposure is exposure kind of way, but the, it was more about the deadline. So it made making stuff after school more like school. So you have to have seven things done to be in this coffee shop by this date because it's that's what you signed up for and you don't want to embarrass yourself. So you're going to put the time in. You're going to want to invite your friends to come and you don't want to embarrass yourself. So you're going to put the time in and to just give yourself those regular deadlines. Okay. I'm just to be clear, I'm not pretty. So you're saying doing some of those crappy coffee shops and bars is a good thing. It's a good thing. Okay. It is. Actually, it's where I first met you. I'm sure. Yeah. We first met at Caprice, Caprice Bistro at one of your exhibitions that Tim was, Tim was like, Hey, you should see him. You got to meet Sean. You got to see his work. And I remember going and seeing your work there. And I never at the time felt like they were crappy opportunities. I can look back and be like, oh, you know, now I would never show in a coffee shop or a bar. Wait until you move to Europe. Well, so what I'm, I'm the point being, it doesn't have to be a coffee shop or a bar. Small opportunities, but give yourself deadlines on a regular basis to make things and you won't want to embarrass yourself. Well, but they can't be, well, okay, I'm thinking, th this is me being selfish again, but like I'm being... 
I'm thinking about myself. I have no opportunities to exhibit right now, but I give myself like personal deadlines in the studio saying like, I want to have X amount of pieces done within a month kind of thing. But that's not enough. It's, it's, the, it's the point of that you have to complete the work and put it in the public. Yeah. Because like just producing work in the studio and not getting into the public sort of defeats the purpose. It, it, like you have to get it out or it's sort of not. Yeah, but in the digital age, it's 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 become weirdly not redundant, but it's almost the same thing because people can see it on social media. It. Yeah, yeah. But and one of the I'm with this new entity in Raleigh that is just an all online gallery, and this was in the works before COVID hit, and they were going to do I don't know like one pop up show per quarter around the Triangle. There was no like one. Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill, maybe even up to Greensboro. No, no, like Craigslist all around the world kind of thing. No. no. And so I have no idea how that's going to go. But in terms of a gallery feeling like it's the best contract I've signed in terms of how fair it is to the artist, it's 60-40. If you sell the work, it's 75-25, even if they're actively you know, promoting the work. And the amount of money instead of overhead they put into marketing and having a branding team, and it's it's well beyond any other gallery like ent- entity I've been with. Does this organization so, have a name? I'm sorry. Yes, Art Suite. Okay. I w- uh, all of these things I will put links in the show notes for the, the, okay. the episode. So that's why I wanted to know exactly what you're talking about. But I don't feel like that was the question. What was the question? The question um, was about advice, but it's fine. Oh. Uh, <laughs> I feel like that's that's the the you're gonna come out knowing so much more about technology and promote your work through social media than when it was evolving in front of us and we were slow to catch on. And and so the the business of being artist now is very much just doing some of that stuff on a regular basis, whereas before it was a lot different in terms of like researching galleries and opportunities and signing up for art lists that would maybe send you regional opportunity anyway. It's all changed so much that now I feel buying like art forum and looking at the classifieds in the back for all the potential exhibition opportunities. I yeah. remember all this stuff. And I mean, there's and there's other routes you can go, like CAA. There's tons of opportunities to show around colleges around the country. They are juried, but they generally pay a little bit. They stipend, and then you have another thing to add to your resume that is one of those other little notches that mm-hmm. someone liked what you're doing, another accreditation stamp. So that's something I would look at too. I know my CV's ten pages long already. I sort of feel like I'm like, I I just I boiled it down to like two. Oh yeah, no, I can edit it down, but like yeah. my full CV is like ten I, pages long. Mine still wouldn't be that long. <laughs> I have a lot of bibliography when I used to do the the oh, writings, yeah, for the, sure you the, did, the yeah. Re- yeah, the art reviews and mm-hmm. stuff like that for the paper. So I have a lot of that kind of stuff too. Yeah. All right. Any last thing, any topic we have not talked about that you desire to talk about that we haven't addressed or anything you want to expand on that we already talked about to sort of sum it up? Uh, you can cut this or not. The I made a little allusion to my wife's job and learning about what curators do based on what she does on a daily basis is not what you think. It's, it's so much paperwork. There's so much bureaucracy. The amount of time she spends in meetings and writing what would you call it? Uh, proposals. Well, it's not the proposals. It's actually the placards that go on the museum wall. The text oh, yeah. word. Yeah, yeah. So writing and editing those things. Museums rotate their collection. And so if you're in charge of one aspect of a collection, you have to write all those things. This isn't, well, 
for African art, she's an Africanist. Those things are more like sensitive. They turn more often. So she has twice as many as a contemporary or even a Renaissance painting, you know. And then the actual curatorial part is always kind of ongoing, but it is like 10% of the job. And the same deal where I was talking about those small-time curators, small-time museums all talk to each other. She's talking to curators around the country. So that network aspect is very real. And choices and purchases are often weirdly... uh, Influenced by? Influenced, directed by a director of a museum. But sometimes pretty, uh, not whimsical, but I don't even know how to... Flippant isn't accurate... Purchase wait museums purchasing things are are whimsical and flippant. So there are budgets, right? Yeah, and so each department has their budget for for that sort of thing, and the whole museum will have a certain budget, and sometimes they steal from each other. They borrow from each other. Let's well, be sure. polite. Okay, let's be polite. And and so the the work isn't always like we love this person's work. It's sort of like this is the right price for this thing. We know it's going to be worth value, and it it's, it becomes like less. She th- she's had to prove things she she hates. We all and, do and things we hate. Yeah, it's just an aspect of museum work that really surprised me that it wasn't such a that one person's sort of guidance and maybe their education and it it, it it's just so much more whimsical yet bureaucratic. I don't know. Like it's it is well a lot of people. It's like my preconceived notion being in school 30 years ago so like mm-hmm. and i was being taught by people who were taught 30 years before that so like you know my knowledge is 60 years old that curator institutional curators we thought were sort of the highest the pinnacle of all decision making processes in a museum it is completely not true yeah they are just a cog in the machine yeah. That, yeah, and so a lot of times they have to do stupid stuff that they have no interest in, mm-hmm. and they have to do things that they don't believe in because yeah. they're just a cog in a machine. Mm-hmm. I mean, depending on the size of the institution, of course. But it's yeah, it's not. Well, I think it's more that it's not what it used to be. I think maybe there was a time when that way uh, might have been true, but it's not true anymore. Yeah, I think that's a a good way to sum that up. Sadly, but true. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. So good to catch up.